Welcome along to Church the Mad. Welcome to Joe's, especially if you're new or visiting us. We're really glad to have you with us. And let me encourage you to keep the book of Habakkuk open in front of you. Um, it's a very small part of the Bible, as you'll know, and it's actually quite hard to find. So if you close it, it'll take a while to find it again. So let me encourage you to have it there as we look at it together tonight. We're going to be looking at Habakkuk over the next uh, three weeks or so. Um, two weeks here, and then the last one will be um, just for the traditional service, but we'll also make the recording of that online for you available too. Um, let me pray and we'll look at it. Oh, Heavenly Father, um, as we prepare ourselves for Christmas this year, as we prepare to remember the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to this world, Father, we pray that we would be able to um, understand him better by looking at the Old Testament. And we pray that we might be able to be more in awe of the gracious act that you have done in sending your son to this world. Father, we pray for us tonight as we look at this part of Scripture, um, help us to see it correctly, help us to read it rightly, help us to apply it faithfully. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks ago, I was talking to a student at a local school, and the student was unhappy. No surprise, you might think. But the student was unhappy, and I asked him, uh, what's, what's going on? Why, why are you so downcast? And he said that earlier that day, his class had got in trouble at school from his teacher and that they weren't allowed to go out to lunch. They all had to stay back. And I said to him, well, maybe, you know, just maybe hypothetically, that maybe the teacher had a really good reason to, to keep you all back in class. And uh, he said, no, I was doing the right thing. I didn't do anything wrong. I was one of the good kids. It was the bad kids who were mucking up. They deserve to stay in. I deserve to go to lunch. And I said, um... Well, I guess sometimes, mate, uh, things don't always turn out that fair. And he said, it's not fair. It shouldn't have turned out that way. And uh, I um, understood. You know, nothing quite like missing out on a ham sandwich to, to you know, fuel a bit of righteous indignation, of course. And, um, but I felt for him because uh, what he went through is something that all of us experience all the time, a question of fairness. Things tend to happen to us in our life and it just doesn't seem fair and we want to complain. Sometimes we want to scream. We want to tell someone. It makes us miserable. There's a little part of us that, that wants fairness in our life, that wants the wicked judged and it doesn't seem to happen. We look around us and it doesn't seem to happen. It doesn't seem fair. All of us have a strong sense of justice, especially when things go against us. Well, I guess you might say to that, well, whoever said life was supposed to be fair? You know, maybe I should have told that student, you know, maybe, maybe that's just got to get used to it, kid. That's what life's like. Uh, not all, the rules don't always get followed. And, and you know what? Maybe a teacher was stuck and didn't know what else to do in that situation. And you know what? Maybe you weren't quite as good as you thought you were. There are all sorts of things that factor into it. You can find an explanation. But still, deep down inside us, we wonder, is it really fair? Now, in life, of course, these sorts of things come up all the time and, you know, maybe it's at home, maybe it's at work, maybe it's at school. And, you know, one good thing about life is you've always got someone you can go and complain to. <laughs> you, you can go and take it up with your teacher later on if you want to. Or if your boss overlooks you for a promotion, you can take it up with them. Like, there's a way, there's usually a mechanism for you to at least be able to air your grievance. But what happens if the person that you want to have a bone to pick with is God? What happens when you're so fed up with what you see going on, the only person that you think is answerable to your claim of injustice is God? What do you do? Well, that's the situation that we find in the book of Habakkuk. 
Habakkuk thinks, sees what's going on and says, this is not fair, this is not right. And so we get to hear his conversation with God. Let's have a look at it. Habakkuk is a prophet from the Old Testament and we actually know very little about him. Um, We know that he lived um, something around the order of 2,600 years ago, long time ago from now. And he he was living in the tiny nation of Judah, which was the southern part of Israel. So when you see Judah in the Old Testament, it's referring to the southern part of the nation of Israel. It's just worth knowing. And Habakkuk, we're told here, chapter 1, verse 1, is that he was a prophet. Now, normally, prophets during Old Testament times, here's what normally happened for them. Normally, prophets would see things going on over there in the world. And then they would tell people on behalf of God that they need to to get their act together, right? So stuff's going on in the world. Maybe they've stopped worshipping the Lord. They've turned away from God. The prophet sees that. And on behalf of God says, you guys need to get your act together and turn back. That's mostly how we see prophets of the Old Testament. But this time, we see something different. Instead of confronting the people with God's message, in Habakkuk, we see Habakkuk the prophet confront God with the claims and the discontent of the people. He confronts God. Now, that's a very bold thing to do, isn't it? To confront God with a sense of injustice and unfairness. But that's what's taking place here. Habakkuk is looking around at what's going on in his country, what he sees going on in the world. He feels it's unfair. He feels it's unjust. And he thinks to himself, who better to bring this up with than God himself? Ever wanted to do that? I think we've all been in situations where we felt the desire to raise our case before God. That's what this letter is about. Let's have a look. What is his issue and concern? We see it listed for us in verses 2 through to verse 4. And he cries out, How long, O Lord, how long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Straight away we can see that something is not right. Something is tugging on his heart and he's wondering why God is not responding to him or listening to him. He's crying out to God and he's getting silence on the other end of the line. Have you ever felt like that? I think that often us as humans, we tend to think that um, if God is out there, then, then he should always be ready to jump in and intervene as soon as something is not right, as soon as something isn't fair. Like he's like a referee on a sporting ground, right? You know, you're playing a game, yeah, you, you know, one person's kicking your ball that way, another person can ball that way, and then when someone you know, grapples you to the ground, you expect the whistle to blow and the referee to stop the game and set things right. I think that's how we think God should act. When we see things that aren't right, we wait for the whistle from heaven to blow and God to stop the game and get things back on track again. But what happens when the referee is nowhere to be found? (laughs) What happens when there's no whistle? What happens when God doesn't seem to be responding? That's a question that I think cuts to the very heart of our life with God, of our faith itself. And that's why it's serious and that's why it really matters. I was reading a book um, last few weeks called The Children of Men. 
Um, maybe you've heard of it. It's actually, I think it's been turned into a movie. I haven't seen the movie. And it's a story about what life on earth would be like if babies stopped being born just overnight. Imagine. We're so used to babies being born. Babies are wonderful. They cry, they make lots of noise, they're lots of fun. But what would happen to the world if babies just stopped being born? A few months go past, everyone starts to get concerned. A year goes past, 10 years goes past, 20 years goes past. That's the story that this book takes up. It starts to cast a very bleak future for all of humanity. And it made the people in the book ask all kinds of questions. Questions of faith. Questions about God. And in the story, one of the women is talking about this and she's desperate and she says, well, if God gets us through this, maybe I'll change my mind about God. If God gets me through this moment, if he turns up on the scene, maybe I'll change my mind about God. And the person that she's talking to is a man and he responds to her and says, I just don't think it works like that. And she says, well, Yes, he does. He does work like that. He's supposed to be just. If he wants me to believe, he better provide some evidence. That he exists, the man responded. Are you looking for evidence that he exists? The lady responded, no. I know he exists, but I want proof that he cares. For many of us, when we see a world that seems so unfair and we're living through moments in our life that feel so unjust, it may not make us wonder whether God exists, but it might make us wonder whether he cares. And there's something terrifying about that idea, isn't there? See, when you've been in the pit, when you've felt that pain, when you've experienced that tragedy, the most bitter conclusion that you can reach is not that God is not there, but that he is, and he's not interested. God, are you listening? Do you hear Habakkuk's cry? See, Habakkuk isn't wondering about whether God is there. He knows God is there. He's convinced of God. He knows knows God. But what he is concerned with is why isn't God intervening in these circumstances? Everything around me is disintegrating. Your beloved nation is filled with violence and conflict. Where are you? So what was going on? Let's have a look. Verse verse 2 and 3 and onwards. He cries out to God, why must I call for help? You not listen. I cry out to you. Violence. There's a clue. The word for violence, by the way, is the same word Hamas. Heard that word in Hebrew, Hamas. It's a word too familiar to us at the moment, isn't it? Violence is taking place in the nation of Judah, the southern part of Israel. And God hasn't saved them. Verse 3, he's even frustrated that he now has to look at injustice. He sees the injustice and his eyes cannot turn away. He sees the people around him suffering and he wonders, God, why do you tolerate wrong? He sees the wrongdoing, why do you tolerate it? Destruction and violence are before me, there is strife and conflict abounds. Judah must have been an awful place to live during Habakkuk's day. Lots of things were starting to disintegrate all around him. But you know what? It wasn't always that way in the southern part of Israel. You see, just before this takes place, 
things had started to get a lot better. Things had turned around in Judah. The landscape, the lifestyle, things had got much better. And it had gone particularly better under one of the previous kings. You might have heard of him, a king named Josiah. You've heard of that king? King of Israel, King Josiah? He was a boy king. He came to power when he was young. And under his leadership, many wonderful reforms took place in the nation of Israel. People turned back to the Lord. They started having a change of heart about how they were going to act with each other. There was economic prosperity as well. Things had taken a turn. Things had gone well. But then Josiah died. And after that, a new king came into power and everything just crumbled, disintegrated. All those hard-won victories fell apart. Sometimes that's the hardest thing of all, isn't it? You know, when you've worked really hard, you've experienced a turnaround, you've seen things improve and you've got used to it. You started to enjoy the blessings of it. And then all of a sudden, overnight, it falls apart. That's what it was like for Habakkuk. And so there he was living in the southern part of Judah with civil war, God's people fighting each other, people rebelling against God. All the things that they'd worked so hard for had fallen apart. His conclusion is in verse 4. Therefore, he says to God, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. What he's saying is that, and he's saying this to God, he's saying to God, even the law which you have given to your people, your good law, he's talking about the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. He's saying that law, that good law which you have given, it's paralyzed. You can't do anything. We've got this thing and it's not working. It was supposed to bind people to God's ways, was supposed to bring blessing, and it wasn't doing it. I think Habakkuk is implying here somehow that God is to blame for this mess because his law isn't working. That's your law, God, that's not working. Your rules, you established it, and it's proving powerless to solve this problem. The wicked hem us in, and there is no justice. It's not fair. How long, O Lord, indeed. Ever felt like that? Well, in this book, God responds. God's answer comes to the prophet and look at what he says. He says in verse 5, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. God says to Habakkuk, look, watch, be amazed And you're not going to believe this. Look, watch, be amazed. You're not going to believe this. The answer that God is going to give Habakkuk is anything but predictable. No excuses here. So what does God say in response? Remember, there's civil war breaking out in the nation of Judah. People are fighting one another. There's violence. The law isn't being able to, is proved powerless to bring justice. So what does God say? He says in verse 6, I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. This is God's response? Who is Babylon? Perhaps... um, you're, you might be here tonight and you're familiar with Babylon, but 
maybe you don't know that much about it. Babylon, during the time of the southern nation of Judah here, was a young and emerging empire, and it was hungry for territory. Hungry for territories, empires often are. It began under a man named Nabopolassar, and first of all, they took over the capital of Assyria in around 614 BC. Nineveh fell after that, and then eventually they took down the Egyptians as well in 605 BC. Country after country after country came under their control. So where was Judah in the midst of this? Well, they were getting surrounded as Babylon started to take new land. But they found themselves in a bit of a problem because in order to try to secure their safety, they made a bargain with Egypt under Pharaoh Necho. But Pharaoh Necho lost as well. They were allied with the losing team. All seemed lost. So what does God say? You're next. Habakkuk is saying, but we've got these issues going on in our country. It's not fair. It's not just. Where's Your law's not working, God. And God says to them, you're next. What an unbelievable answer. God answers Habakkuk by saying he's going to use a godless enemy nation as a way to bring about the judgment that his own people deserve. That's your answer, Habakkuk. Yes, there's injustice going on. Yes, there's violence going on. And I'm going to bring judgment and I'm going to do it through this enemy empire called Babylon. I don't know how Habakkuk would have felt hearing those words, but I think he knew the writing was on the wall at this point. Let's read a bit more. Verse 7. These people are described. He says, um, God says to them, they are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves. In other words, they're going to do whatever they want. A little bit further down in verse 9, we're told that they will come intent on violence. Hordes will advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. In verse 11, what are we told about them? The last part. We're told they will sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty people whose own strength is their God. This is Habakkuk's response. God, in, in, our, in your land, in your people, amongst your people, there is violence, there is lawlessness, there is injustice. And God says, yes, I'm going to bring judgment with people who are going to use violence, who are lawless, and whose strength is their God. Poor Habakkuk. That's what we think, right, when we hear that? What kind of response is that? He starts off by saying, please just fix this mess. But I doubt he had any idea what was necessary in order to make that happen or what God's intentions would be. I don't know, can you imagine, like, would you have come up with a different plan, maybe? If you could write the script yourself, maybe you would have thought, you know, maybe God could just get a little broom out, you know, and just sweep the empire of Babylon off and maybe get a new king in as well, get rid of this bad king, bring another new king, king like Josiah, maybe. Maybe that's what God could do. Or maybe Habakkuk hoped that God might do an even greater work, that he might do a revolution in the heart of every person living in southern Judah. And so they might want to turn back to God and seek peace. 
I don't know what he had in mind, but he, he learns that his homeland is going to be destroyed. Unbelievable. It's a bit like, um, perhaps it's a little bit like uh, going to the doctor and saying, Doctor, um, got a bit of a tightness in my chest. And the doctor says, well, we're going to have to do something about that. Take a blood test. All right, I'll get my blood test. Blood test results come back. Yep, it seems like there might be a problem here. You're going to need to do an ECG. No worries, doc. Results come back. Oh, it's not looking great. Not looking great for you. We're going to need to do a stress test. Oh, not a stress test. We're on the treadmill. Okay, we're on the treadmill. Results come back. Doctor says, I've got terrible news for you. There's a problem with your heart. And you think, no worries. I've got parents. They've got health insurance. I'll be fine. He says, no, no, no. The way we're going to solve this problem is to cut your heart out. That's what's necessary. You think, couldn't there be another way? Doesn't that make you feel uncomfortable? This was a test for Habakkuk's faith as well. And Habakkuk has more to say. Next week, we're going to hear about his response back to God, responding to God's answer. Remember, this is a conversation that he has with God. We're going to see exactly what he says to God. But for the moment, I simply want to see if we can answer God's question in verse 5, whether we can believe what we're being told here. Can we believe this? The idea that's on display is that God was going to judge the wickedness of his own people by raising up a foreign nation. That notion may be even more difficult to stomach than the notion that God would do nothing about the wickedness of Judah. Can you believe this? Can you believe that God was going to use a violent, godless enemy nation to judge his own people? I think it's reasonable, at least in my view, to feel a little bit uncertain about how that could be the final answer. Violence, chasing violence, chasing violence doesn't sound like a recipe for peace. And it isn't. So what other answers are there? Is there more to the story? Are we missing something here? Well, perhaps the main lesson that we ought to draw from this first part of the chapter is not that violence is the way to end violence, but rather that God's answer to Habakkuk, how long, is that he is still in control over everything that is still about to take place. Because that's what God is outlining to Habakkuk. Habakkuk is concerned with what's going on in his nation. And God says to him, there's so much more things still to come. It's going to be worse. But in the midst of describing the reality of what's about to unfold, he also reminds Habakkuk that he is still in control, that he is still sovereign, that he is still ultimate. And that's so important for us because it reminds us that God is not like us. We live in the present, but God is not bound in the same way that we are to the present. We need to learn to be able to trust God and trust his timing, just as God tells Habakkuk. You won't believe this, he says. I think he's telling Habakkuk that there is something far more profound that's going on here than we can begin to imagine. There's a bigger horizon to this story that's yet to unfold. You're going to need to trust me if you're going to understand. Well, fortunately for us, 
we have seen something of the larger horizon that God had in mind to bring about peace to his people and to bring about the judgment that they deserved. See, God's plan for the judgment of Judah would not finish with Judah. It would also include Babylon. It wasn't finished at 700 BC. He was going to bind all the strands of history together so that there would be no such day when injustice would prevail. In time, God would bring about the fullness of his plan to bring an end not only to injustice, but to evil itself. The very seed which grows inside us that erupts into violence and conflict and strife. God was going to do something about that. He was going to defeat evil once and for all. And he does that. He's revealed it to us by coming into the world, by sending his son. This is what we remember at Christmas. See, when we see Jesus coming into the world, we're reminded of what it took God to bring an end to injustice, to bring an end to conflict, to bring an end to violence. The way to defeat evil was to come into the world himself and overcome it. See, God had a larger horizon in store than just what was going to take place to Judah and Babylon, but that horizon would have to wait until the day that Jesus came. This, of course, is the message of the gospel, the news that, that God would send his son to deal with the evil that exists in the world, to deal with the sin of his own people, to heal brokenness and bring peace. That's why God sent Jesus into the world. That's the reason for the season, that we might have peace with God. Now, the thing that we have to come to grips with, if we're going to believe that, is that it means that we have to come to terms with the fact that not only do other people deserve judgment, the nation of Judah, the empire of Babylon, but we have to come to terms with the fact that we deserve judgment too. That the judgment that God ought to bring justice over is actually found inside each one of us. Can you believe that? That's a hard thing for us to believe. And yet it's true because deep down we know that we don't live up to the standards that we have for our own life. We recognize very clearly the way that we let down other people if you think about the way you've used your words today or even yesterday over the past week, it become very clear to you just how quickly we sin and fall short. And we deserve judgment for that. That's hard to believe, but it's true. Do you believe this? But even harder to believe than that is what God does to bring about the judgment that we deserve. Because this, after all, is what he did when he sent his son into the world. When Jesus came, God made man. What did he do? Well, he took the judgment upon himself that was reserved for us. The judgment that you deserve, the judgment that I deserve, the judgment that we deserve before God for, for our rebellion against him, for our conflict, our strife, our violence. Jesus said, I'm going to take that for you. And he did that at the cross where he died for our sin. This is the gospel. Do you believe this? Well, it was hard for people to believe back then as well. 
And as we follow the story of the New Testament, we see that as the gospel went forth to the nations, people struggled to understand this. Paul, one of the first evangelists, he used to travel from city to city to tell people about this. And one day he was in a, uh, he was in a synagogue in a town called Pisidian Antioch. You can follow the story in Acts chapter 13 if you're following along. And on this particular day, as Paul's in the synagogue, the law was read out. The law of God was read out. And one of the leaders of the synagogue um, asked for someone to get up and encourage the people with a message from the law. And Paul, the apostle, got up. He probably had his hand up. He's probably sitting in the front row. And uh, he got up and he explained that God had operated all throughout history, not only to judge his people, but to save his people. And that ultimately he had fulfilled this plan of both judgment and salvation in coming to the world in Christ. Well, people weren't sure about that. They said, well, how do you know that's true? How do you know that Jesus really is the Messiah, the Savior that God sent into the world? How do you know? And Paul said, we know this because not only did he die for our sin, but he came back to life. The resurrection is his vindication that our sins have been forgiven and that Christ reigns as king. Well, you can imagine the synagogue rules looking around, looking around each other, wondering, well, can we really believe this? We were the ones who were responsible for the death of Jesus. That must have been hard for them to believe. And then Paul says in verse 38, and I want you to hear this message today. He says, therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from sin. A justification that you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Isn't that interesting, by the way? Maybe the law was more paralyzed to bring justice than we first thought. And then Paul quotes from Habakkuk chapter 1, the very chapter that we've had read for us. He says, Take care what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. God has acted in our time and for eternity to deal with the wickedness, the violence in our own hearts. Our response that God calls for is to believe in Jesus, receive him as king and saviour. Is this something you believe? Friends, it might be hard to believe that God would raise up a nation like Babylon to deal with the wickedness of Judah back then in that time. But I think it's even better and more difficult to believe that God himself would become one of us, sacrifice himself for the sins of the whole world, so that whoever believes in him might have forgiveness and the eternal life that he offers. But it's true, and he did exactly that. And so as we look at the world, as we look at our own life, I hope that you've begun to realize that we actually need a little more than justice, don't we? We need a little more than justice. We need grace. We need a God who is ready to forgive. And he does all this for us in Christ. Is it fair that God rescues us from our sins? Is it fair? No. 
but it does show us that he cares. Can you believe that? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a loving God who loves us, that you made us, that you put us together, that you knit, that you knitted us together in our mother's womb, that from before anyone else saw us, you knew us and you loved us. Father, we have rebelled against you. We have done our own thing. There is strife and violence and wickedness in our own hearts. For that, our Heavenly Father, we are sorry. And we bring it before you now and pray that you would forgive us as you promise. Thank you so much, Lord, for what you have done for us in Christ to bring about that forgiveness to bring about a new life, a fresh start, and eternal hope. Lord, we pray that we might be people who respond to your grace with such overflowing hearts, overflowing worship. Thank you that your grace saves us, Lord. Thank you that it shows us that you care more deeply about us than we first realized. Help us to live as people of grace, ready to forgive and ready to believe. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.